Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 14. Uh, it's on page 903. If you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table, we're going to be finishing up this chapter today. Remember, it's the longest chapter in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're going to look at verses 53 through 72. Mark, Mark 14, verse 53, all the way into chapter 15, verse 15, covers the trials of Jesus, both before the Jews and the Romans. He's going to have two trials, one before his own people, one before the, the governing people of the day. And um, both trials have three parts, uh, but not all the, of those parts are mentioned in, in Mark. Um, in the Jewish trial, the first part is the hearing uh, with Ananias, or with An Ananias, I think. I may have written it down. He's the father-in-law of the high priest, okay, uh, uh, of the high priest Caiaphas. And uh, that's reported only in John's gospel. And then the, the, the second part is this secret trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the highest Jewish court. Um, and it's led by the high priest Caiaphas in his house, we're going to see that here in chapter 14 this morning. And then there's another session with the Sanhedrin first thing in the morning that um, we'll see in chapter 15. So at that, those are the three parts of the Jewish trial. And then the Roman trial, uh, part one is the hearing before Pilate, which we'll read that exchange next week. And then part two is the hearing before Herod Antipas that is recorded only in Luke's gospel. And this is the same Herod who had John the Baptist arrested and eventually beheaded. Okay. And then part three is back before Pilate again, um, which in Mark's gospel, he, he combines that first and last part together. And we'll see that in chapter 15, sort of as one unit. Now, both of these trials give testimony to the injustice that Jesus endures as he is condemned and put to death to satisfy personal and political agendas of the governing authorities of that day. But in this passage today, two people are actually on trial here. Okay, and you might even say a, a third, if you include us as the readers. But the two main people here on, on trial are Jesus and Peter. And in another uh, Markan sandwich, so to speak, what we've, what we've been come to see and know in Mark's gospel is he takes stories and opens one up and sticks another one in there and, and sandwiches them together to give a deeper meaning to both. Mark pits Jesus's true testimony against Peter's false testimony in this uh, sandwich in, in this passage today. Jesus will openly identify himself as the Messiah, while Peter will openly deny Jesus three times. Okay, now this passage, it's going to offer both a warning and a comfort to those of us who are called to give daily testimony, daily witness to our union with Christ, and it'll challenge those who don't follow Jesus to consider the testimony that's given here and make a judgment about whether or not you believe it. And if we all are willing to take an honest look at these verses today, then we're going to witness this undeniable testimony of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. So I want to pray that the Lord uses his spirit to open our eyes uh, to receive his word, and then we'll read it together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your church. We thank you for all these things that you've given us for life and godliness here. And so as we open your word together this morning and read from it, would you enliven our hearts 
to receive it with joy and gladness? Would you open our eyes to see the truth that is in uh, here in, in it? And would you help us in the power of your spirit uh, to greater obedience to it? For your glory and for our good, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we need to, to take a, a note of, of one witness that shows up throughout this passage, but isn't really specifically mentioned by Mark here, and that's God's word, okay? Um, as this scene unfolds, Jesus will fulfill things that were written in scripture hundreds of years before uh, this moment, and God's spoken word will be fulfilled by the religious leaders and by Peter as they carry out uh, as they do and they say the things that Jesus said they will do and say. Um, and so God's written word and, and God's spoken word are going to give testimony to, to the truth of who Jesus is. As, as this unfolds, we're going to see everything that God has, has uh, said before will come to pass. Okay, so let's dig in. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. They, meaning the, the crowd, the, the mob from before that arrested him, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard, and he was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. Now, it's still in the middle of the night. It, it's, it's very early Friday morning. Remember, Jesus is going to be crucified in just a matter of hours um, and the mob that was hired by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they, they've arrested Jesus, and now they're leading him away to the high priest. Now, I want you to keep this phrase in mind for a few minutes, okay? They led him away. Keep, keep those words in mind. We're going to come back to him in a few minutes. <clears throat> Jesus has gone from sharing a meal with his disciples in an upper room to now being put on trial in, a, in secret in the upper room of the high priest's house. And before they can take Jesus to the Roman governor, the high priest has to confirm charges against Jesus. Now, normally, if you remember the Sanhedrin, the, the highest court in, 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 uh, in Jewish law, um, their courtroom is actually in the temple, in the temple court. They would gather and they would, they would hold session in the temple court during the day. But here, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes are so determined to kill Jesus that they're fast-tracking this process, and they're breaking several of their own rules in order to make sure that Jesus is found guilty. And so they convene in, in an unofficial secret court in the palace of the high priest in the middle of the night. At the end of last, last week's passage, Jesus is, is completely alone in the garden, right? Remember that? And all of his disciples, they've fallen away and they've abandoned him. But then we get this glimmer of hope that, that all is not lost when we see in verse 54, who's, who shows back up? Here comes Peter, right? He ran away, but, but he's here. He's still following Jesus, but he's doing so at a distance. And it, it seems at first like Mark's mention of this is an interruption to what's happening with Jesus, but he notes it specifically to set up another, uh, another sandwich, literary sandwich for his readers. Peter's distance here foreshadows his denial in, in a, a matter of verses. And so while Jesus is on trial in the upper room of the high priest's house, Peter is down in the courtyard, sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. 
trying to blend in with the crowd, but soon he's going to be on trial himself. Look at verse 55. Let's continue. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. So the, the scene shifts quickly back to Jesus from Peter warming himself by the fire and to Jesus being put under fire by the religious leaders. And since chapter three, we, we know this, right? Uh, there's been a growing and concerted effort by the religious leaders of Jesus's day to find a way to kill him. Mark lays that out for us. They are plotting and plotting and planning and, and scheming to find a way to put Jesus to death. And what's striking about these verses is that in all that time, since chapter three, nobody's been able to figure out a way to do it. Nobody has anything solid against Jesus. They've been unable to find anything that they can use against him. And Jewish law stated that no one was allowed to be put to death based on the testimony of one witness. They needed to have at least two or three witnesses whose testimonies agreed with each other before they could officially charge someone and sentence them to death. Verse 55 says that the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus. That phrase, testimony against Jesus, is, is, is the emphasis in these verses here. Now they're looking for just two people. All they need is two to come forward as witnesses of something that Jesus said or did that would incriminate him, and they can't find any, Mark says. They've been plotting and scheming to no end, no, no, no resolution for them. They, they couldn't even find two people whose false testimonies agreed and, uh, enough to charge Jesus, and they had plenty of false witnesses to choose from. It says, Mark says, many stood up, right? I mean, everybody's get, trying to, trying to give a, a, a testimony against Jesus, but none of them are matching. The closest thing they could find was what uh, was said in verse 57 and 58. Some stood up and said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, I will build another not made by hands. But they can't even agree on that, Mark says. that They're striking out all over the place. Why can't they agree on that? Because Jesus never said it, right? He never said he would destroy the temple. Now, in Mark's gospel, he alludes to the destruction of the temple in chapter 13, but he never said he would be the one to destroy it. And in John's gospel, John records Jesus saying to the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Maybe that's what they're talking about there. But in that case, Jesus is referring not to the physical temple in Jerusalem, but to his own body to himself and, and to his enemies putting him to death and to his resurrection three days later. So it's clear here who is the guilty party and who is the innocent party. These religious leaders are doing everything they possibly can to, to try to pin guilt upon Jesus and it just keeps falling off. And the more they try, the more guilty they become. Not one true charge can be brought against Jesus, and yet the religious court is willing to overlook 
many who are breaking the ninth commandment about bearing false witness against your neighbor if it means that they can find two men who will bear false witness together against our Lord. We should be, we should be outraged here, right? We ought to read this and, and just get like angry about the sense of injustice that these men are doing and committing against our Lord. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and the one who stirs up trouble among brothers. These men could be indicted for all seven of those counts and found guilty of all seven of those counts. They're committing these detestable things literally against the God who finds them detestable. Do you feel the irony here? Do you sense that, that, that what's happening? They're doing these things because they, they detest him and they want to kill him, but their plan's not working. And so the high priest changes tactics. He steps down off of the, the judge's bench, bench and he becomes the prosecuting attorney, uh, uh, attorney. Look at verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Remember how I said to keep that opening phrase in mind from verse 53, they led Jesus away. You put that together with, with these verses here, 60 and 61, and you get a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Listen to what it says. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. The mob led Jesus away like a lamb to the slaughter. And he was brought before the religious leaders like a lamb before her shearers. He was taken away to be oppressed and to be judged by these men. Yet what? He did not open his mouth. He gave no answer. He kept silent and did not answer. And, and because he has no need to vindicate himself. His father will vindicate him soon enough. Let's keep reading. The rest of verse 61. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. Jesus won't answer the false accusations about him, but he will answer the high priest's question about his true identity because there's no need to keep it a secret anymore. There's no chance of anyone in this room pledging their allegiance to Jesus as the military king come to, to upset the throne of Rome. Jesus came as the suffering servant and, and it's his testimony as the son of God here that will bring his suffering to its fulfillment on the cross. In the Greek, the high priest's question is in the form of a statement 
that's implied as a question. In essence, he's saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. Yes. Jesus, uh, Jews didn't speak God's name out of fear of using it in a dishonorable way. And so they substituted Yahweh with things like blessed one. And so in other words, the high priest has just made this statement declaring Jesus to be the Messiah and God's son. In a bit of irony in Mark's gospel, uh, in chapter 15, a Roman centurion will make a similar statement. And in the, in the irony, the, the two most complete confessions in Mark's gospel of Jesus's identity come not from his closest disciples, but from those who put him to death. Jesus, he answers the high priest's question in verse 62 with the words, I am. Again, the, the, the Greek there is that Mark uses in that wording is associated with God's name. The high priest might be afraid to say it, but Jesus isn't. Why? Because he is. Because he is God. He is Yahweh, the I am. And just in case he wasn't making himself clear enough, Jesus tells everyone in the room, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's fulfilling more scripture here. Psalm 110, 1 says, this is the declaration of, of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus's answer brings these two passages together and applies them to himself. He's pointing forward to his ascension after his death and resurrection, where he will be seated in power at the right hand of the father. And he's pointing forward even more to his return at the end of the age, where he himself will come to judge mankind. Jesus may be on trial now, but when he returns, he's the one who will hold court and his judgment will be final. Now, this had to be an encouraging reminder to Mark's original readers as they experienced persecution and unjust actions against them from the Roman authorities because of their faith in Christ. It ought to encourage us, too, as we face an unknown future where we may not be able to rely on the comforts of our religious liberty, and yet our mission remains the same. Whatever degree of injustice we experience as Christ followers, we can take comfort in knowing that our Lord is able to sympathize with us. And not only that, that one day he will come and he will vindicate us so that we don't have to defend ourselves. We need only profess Christ. And if you're not a Christ follower, my prayer is that you'll take an honest look at the claim that Jesus is making here about himself and, and heed this warning that, that he's giving this is an act of grace that God would warn us about what's to come. He's not going to return just to judge the religious leaders of his day. He's going to come back and he's going to judge every last human being that's ever existed. And his judgments will be right and good and true and permanent. There will be no appealing. There will be no overturning. We all rightly stand condemned to death for our sin and rebellion against God. And only those who trust in Christ will receive life and not death.
when he returns. So what answer will you give to the true king of kings when he calls you to give an account? My hope is that you'll take hold of him through faith and believe that he bore the wrath of the father on the cross as your substitute and that he rose from the dead for your justification before the father so that you're not only declared not guilty, but God in his grace goes even farther than that and declares you righteous in his sight. This statement that Jesus makes in verse 62, it puts the religious leaders on trial for a moment. How they respond to this statement will determine their fate. They must believe in him to be saved. But instead, they condemn him to death. The high priest tears his robes to show his shock and horror at Jesus' statement. And he accuses Jesus of blasphemy for undermining the authority and majesty of God. It's a scene loaded with irony, right? The high priest is himself in that moment blaspheming God by undermining the authority and the majesty of Jesus, who is God, and accusing him of blasphemy. And then he turns to the rest of the Sanhedrin and he says, why, why do we still need witnesses? You, you've all heard the blasphemy. In other words, the requirement for at least two witnesses with corroborating testimony, it's met because every single one of those people in that room heard what Jesus said. They have more than enough witnesses. And now they can make a judgment. And what's their judgment? He deserves to die. And in that condemnation, they fulfill what Jesus himself had already said would happen back in chapter 10. That he would be handed over to the religious leaders and they would condemn him to death. The punishment for blasphemy was, not, or, or, was, was stoning to death. But under Roman rule, Jews weren't able to carry out uh, capital punishment and so they had to bring it before the Roman authorities. It had to be carried out by the Roman authorities, which is why Jesus will be sent to Pilate and why Jesus will be executed on a Roman cross and not by stoning. But in, in being executed on a Roman cross, even that is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Again, fulfilling more scripture. Fulfilling Isaiah 53 and the death of the suffering servant. <clears throat> more irony in verse 63 as some members of the Sanhedrin spit on Jesus they blindfold him they beat him while they mockingly tell him to prophesy they have no idea that Jesus has already prophesied about this moment three times to his disciples we know this chapter 8 chapter 9 chapter 10 his predictions of the passion of his suffering and death and his resurrection they also don't realize that more prophecies from Isaiah are being fulfilled in this moment. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. This terrible moment is not only a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a decisive rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the Sanhedrin. We need to understand again and see that the tension between God's sovereignty in the situation and man's responsibility. 
and to literally, they've turned away from God himself here and to literally add insult to injury, the temple servants also took Jesus and they slapped him. Now, we don't know this kind of humiliation. Things like this may have happened to us in various degrees, but, but never all of this at, at once on our shoulders. We, we don't understand fully what Jesus is experiencing here. But that doesn't mean that we can just read it as a matter of fact and gloss over it. We need to understand that, that Christ suffered to the fullest extent. There is nothing, there is nothing that he did not suffer on our behalf. Far more than the physical death that he endured is as painful as crucifixion is. He's the only perfectly innocent human being who ever lived. And he was unjustly condemned as a criminal deserving death. He wasn't given a fair trial. His friends abandoned him. He was despised. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was whipped. He was nailed to a cross by his hands and his feet. He was pierced in the side with a, a spear. He was crucified. And in all of this, he was in control. Because he had come to carry out, what did he say in the garden? Not my will, but the will of the Father. And it was the Father's will that his own son should suffer and die in the place of condemned sinners so that they could be reconciled to God and be called his children forever. This is tremendously good news. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus's greatest moment of suffering was when he bore the full weight of the father's wrath against our sin. And the father took that moment and he worked it for our greatest good. Jesus became our substitute so that we could be saved. Praise God. This is why God can take all things and work them together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. What's his purpose? Romans 8, 29 and 30. To use all things to conform us to the image of his son and to glorify us together with him. He will even use our failures and our weaknesses to do that. And that brings us back to Peter. Verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. <coughs> Excuse me. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Let's just be reminded here for a second of what Peter said earlier in this chapter, in verse 29. Even if everyone falls away, I will not. In verse 31, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. But our current scene gives testimony to Peter's 
guilt, does it not? While Jesus is being spit on and beaten, Peter's warming himself by the fire. And the fire shines enough light on Peter's face that a maidservant recognizes him. And while Jesus is put on trial by the high priest, Peter is put on trial by the high priest's slave girl. Her first accusation is in verse 67. You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. In the original language, the order, the word order denotes more hostility than we can pick up here in the English. In essence, she's saying, you were with that Nazarene Jesus. Emphasizing her contempt for him because of where he's from. Even one of Jesus' own disciples, when he called him, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Peter's first denial comes in verse 68. The man who pledged to die with Jesus is suddenly backpedaling here, right? His own mind, even if I have to die with you, even if everyone else falls away, I won't. If I have to die with you, that's what it takes. I don't know what you're talking about. I got no clue. Fearing for his own life, fear for his own life is growing. And so he says, I do not know I do not understand what you're talking about. He's claiming to have no knowledge of Jesus, it, theoretically or practically, even though he's one of Jesus's closest followers. Keep in mind, this man has witnessed the transfiguration of his Lord. He's seen Christ in his glory. He's gotten the glimpse of what's yet to come. And he cowers at the accusation of a little slave girl. After this denial, Peter makes his way out of the courtyard to the entryway. He wants to be closer to the exit so that he can escape quickly if he needs to. And as he gets closer to the entryway, he gets farther from Jesus. And as he's standing there poised to flee, what happens? Rooster crows. And even though you know, even though you know Peter is going to deny Jesus two more times, in this moment, don't you want him to hear that rooster and snap out of it? Like, Peter, this is it. Remember what Jesus said? The rooster's crowing. Listen, don't do it. And we want to warn him because we all know Peter's plight here. We all know how it feels to be so concerned with our own self-preservation that we fail to see over and over again, the gracious warnings that Christ has given us to keep us from giving into temptation and sinning against our Lord. We know that he always gives us a way of escape from temptation, but too often we choose to, to, uh, to find our own way of escape and we end up distancing ourselves from Christ. We want Peter to hear the rooster here because we know what it feels like to ignore it. And while he's standing at the entryway, the maidservant sees him again. And this time she gives testimony against Peter to those standing nearby. She says to them, this man is one of them. I know it. He's one of them. She must have at least heard something about a group of people that follow Jesus around as their leader. Because she pits Peter in with that group. And then Mark's statement of Peter's reaction, it's short, but it's poignant. But again, he denied it. And as the reader, after knowing that the roosters just crowed, what else is there to say? Mark just summed it up. Again, he denied it. 
in the Greek, it gives the sense that Peter kept on denying it. Like there's, there's just no, 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 no wavering back and forth. It's just this driving force continuing to deny more and more. He's persistent in his denial. And now it's in front of more people. Distance between Peter and Jesus continues to grow. And those standing there, they recognize his Galilean accent. And so after thinking about it for a while, they press the issue with him because they know that Jesus came from Galilee. So they tell Peter, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. You, you have to be. And then comes Peter's third and most devastating denial. He starts to curse and to swear. Now, this doesn't mean that he's spouting off profanities. It's actually far worse than that. He's swearing by God's name in order to convince them that he's telling them the truth. When you and I know, and Peter himself knows, that he's flat out lying. He says, I don't know this man you're talking about. He doesn't even use Jesus's name here. The first two times Peter denies any association with Jesus, this time he denies Jesus himself. And in doing so, Peter fulfills the words of Christ that he had spoken about him. Before the rooster crows twice, Peter, you will deny me three times. And immediately after Peter crowed that third denial, the rooster crowed Peter's guilt. There was no ignoring it this time, no running away from what he had done. He had folded under the pressure of persecution in his fear of man, in his fear of a, of a slave girl. He'd given false testimony and he'd denied his Lord. And upon that realization, Peter broke down and he wept. Now, this is Peter's last appearance in Mark's gospel. Jesus will mention his name in chapter 16 after the resurrection, but this is the last time we see Peter. And at first glance, it seems like all hope is lost for him, right? He broke down and wept. That, that's all we get from Mark's gospel. Jesus stood firm as he was questioned by the high priest. Peter buckled in fear as he was questioned by a slave girl. And yet it's in those final words in verse 72 that we see the undeniable testimony of God's grace. You see, Jesus's words in verse 72 were not meant to shame Peter, but to save him. Christ told Peter that this would happen before it did so that Peter would see that Christ's testimony was true and, and right and that he would believe everything else that Jesus told him. When Jesus said that he must be rejected by the religious leaders and killed and rise again on the third day, Peter rebuked him for it. He didn't believe Jesus, and now he's witnessing everything that Jesus has said come to pass, and so are we. And so while Peter is overcome by the shame and the guilt of denying his Lord here, soon he'll remember the, the, the promise that Jesus gave of his own resurrection when he sees with his own eyes his risen Lord. In John's gospel, after Jesus rose from the dead, he had a conversation with Peter on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, where it all began where he'd first called Peter to follow him. And in that conversation, it was Jesus's turn to do the questioning. Three times he asked Peter, what? Do you love me? And three times Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter's testimony was true. And in an act of lavish grace, his Lord had restored him. 
And then he told Peter that a day would come when Peter would stretch out his own hands and be killed for the sake of Christ's name. And then he told Peter the words that he told him in the very beginning. Follow me. Follow me. Years later, Peter wrote a letter to Christ's followers who, who were living in exile and being persecuted for their faith. And he closed his letter with these words in 1 Peter 5, 10 through 12. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. These are not the words of a man who is still wallowing in the guilt and shame of denying his Lord. These are the words of a man who has experienced the gracious forgiveness of Christ and believes the words of his Savior. Peter's denial of Jesus in this passage has to serve as a warning to us. Let it be like a rooster's crow to us. If the leader of the apostles, Peter, the, 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 in Christ's inner circle of the inner circle, if he's capable of faltering under pressure of persecution and suffering by denying Christ, then so are we. His weakness serves as a testimony to our weakness and our need for strength outside of ourselves to remain faithful to our Lord. How many times have you and I faltered in our own witness for Christ under far less pressure than even Peter faced here? It's easy for us to read stories about Christian martyrs and hail them as heroes who had extraordinary faith and, and strength while at the same time wondering if, if we would ever have what it takes to die for the sake of Christ. But those martyrs would tell you themselves, they're not superheroes. They're witnesses who give testimony to the grace of God and his saving power through Jesus Christ. We get the English word martyr from the Greek word that means to bear witness. We're called to martyrdom every day of our lives. That's what Paul is talking about in Acts 20, 24. To finish my mission, give testimony to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. It means we're called to, to die every day so that we can bear witness to the power of our resurrected Jesus. To give testimony to his saving grace and bear witness to his life-giving and transforming power, whether it's to the highest court or to the lowliest person in society, whether it costs us our lives or it costs us our pride. And when we falter, because we will, and we have, when we falter in weakness as Peter did, we can take comfort in this passage. We can hold on to the undeniable testimony of God's grace through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who freely forgives and restores all who come to him in brokenness and repentance, no matter how many times we've failed him. This is why the gospel is so good. We need to understand that none of us is beyond the ability to deny Christ. But we also need to understand that none of us can deny Christ's ability to restore us when we do. And so as his followers and as his church, let's be honest 
about our weaknesses. Let's be honest about our, our sin and freely confess it to Christ and to one another. Let's not distance ourselves from Jesus, but draw closer to the one whose testimony is true, the one who bore our judgment and took our shame. And let's bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that whether we have merely to fight our own nerves or we have to face persecution and suffering and even death, that the one who rescued us from ourselves will keep us from faltering in fear of others as we depend on him for the strength that we need to be faithful to the calling that he's given to us. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your testimony is true. We thank you for that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Lord, would you help us? We don't want to fail you, but we know we will. It's the whole reason you came. Because we cannot present ourselves as guiltless before a holy God. But you can. And you do for all those who come to you in repentance. Leaning not on their own works, but on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. and believing our resurrected King when he says he will return as judge over all things. And on that day, we will be vindicated with him and live forever in your presence as children of God. We thank you for this promise. We pray for help to keep that firmly and squarely in view as we go each day as martyrs, those who die to themselves to bear witness to Jesus. For your glory, for our good, and our conforming into his likeness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.